This is Fun Reading Radio, and today's guest speaker we have Chris Liu, investor at Employee Stock Option Fund, and an angel investor. And in this episode, we'll talk about what an employee stock option fund is, what do they invest in, how do they invest, because their investment thesis is just unique, and their approach to investing is just unique. And we'll also talk about Chris' personal preference into angel investing, and he will give some recommendations on. Uh, reaching out to other angel investors. So, Chris, let's kick off by you giving us some background on yourself and on the Employee Stock Option Fund. Thank you, Constantine. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I joined uh, the Employee Stock Option Fund in 2015, so I've been there for almost five years now. And uh, on the side, I started angel investing about uh, two to three years ago. Uh, The Employee Stock Option Fund was started by a former venture capitalist named Scott Cho, and he uh, used to do early stage investing. And he saw a lot of people leaving startups of his and letting their options just expire. And he knew the companies were doing well. So on a one-off basis, he would help fund the exercise and then split the future upside. Uh, the ESO fund, as we call it, um, has that exact same model today. So we effectively help employees exercise, cover taxes, and then split any future upside. However, in at my time with the ESO fund, I've interacted with you know hundreds of people. And out of those hundreds of people, a good number of them actually became founders themselves. They may have been an early employee at you know Stripe, Airbnb, or one of those really hot companies, and then they decided to start their own company down the line. So that's how I got into angel investing uh, at the same exact time. And over time, I've actually recognized a couple patterns and done a lot of research into exactly how uh, you know fundraising works. And uh, because ESO Fund looks at later stage, and then angel investing looks at earlier stage, I also see uh, the difference between the two. And I'm uh, happy to talk about it more. Sure. Just clarifying for some of my listeners uh, that stock options, some people confuse them with just, you know, shares that you just get. After you work at the company, usually employees are compensated with stock options, which means that you can buy shares uh, of the company at a usually pretty big discount if you're an early employee. So uh, I hope that clarifies how ESO fund works. So uh, here I would actually like to jump straight into the discussion of fundraising uh, from angel investors. So the, the key factor here is often getting a warm introduction and many founders just don't have uh, many paths to investors. So what's your recommendation to those founders who don't have uh, direct paths to angel investors? Yeah, that's a great question. So I see fundraising very much like a sales funnel. Uh, and so when you don't know the customers that you're going to sell into, how do you sell to those customers? And I think what works best is finding your ideal customers first. So for example, what does that translate to for startup funding? If you are a fintech firm, you probably should not be pitching it to a direct-to-consumer you know, e-commerce venture fund just because you know, it's not even their market, it's not their expertise, and they'll look at it and they'll just ignore you because it's clear that you don't know anything about them. So when you're selling yourself, venture uh, funding, especially seed and angel funding, you're very much selling yourself, your idea, the team, and your vision. And so you want to find the people who would actually believe in you, in your vision and your team. I've seen a lot of deals work 
you know, after some discussions and after the VCs and angels understand uh, your mindset and they're really excited about the space and they think that you have some unique insight. If you don't have those, you know, it, you, it's really hard to sell yourself as a differentiated product, which you can still do. Uh, back to your point about not having a warm intro, I think once you know your customer, you can customize a cold email or something that really hits a tone with them. I get a lot of inbounds. And, you know, I could tell immediately if an email is a, you know, mass email where they may even spell my name wrong, or if it's very, very directed, they looked at what I invest in, they, you know, maybe listened or read some of my blog posts where they really, really understand uh, what's going on. So for example, let me uh, give you a quick one. Uh, there's a friend of mine, his name's Jeff Chang is an amazing angel investor. Oh. Uh, from Pinterest. So he was an early Pinterest growth engineer. And uh, he basically started uh, a blog post. And he talks about the one metric he cares about the most to determine product market fit. And so he has a full blog post about that. If you're trying to pitch him and you're trying to show him that, hey, my metrics look really good, you should send him a direct email. First thing in the email, the chart that he wants and the metric that he wants. Because as soon as he looks at it, that will pique his interest. And that's how you start the conversation. Say, so, whoa, this company looks like it has some serious traction. Otherwise, you know, if you send them an email talking about your you know, vision and your team and how you know, it just doesn't fit. He invests very much mm -hmm. uh, based right. off of what he knows and he knows growth very well. So if you're not growing, it's gonna be really, really hard to convince him uh, that you know, you're a good fit with him with a cold email. Other than cold emails and you know very, very uh, direct messaging, I would say you have to spend the time networking. Some VCs and some angels see their network as the first hurdle. If you can't get a warm intro to them, why should they invest? So how do you go right. about that? Well, there's a bunch of ways. These days there's you know Twitter and the Twitter community extremely uh, you know, active and very vocal. You can build a brand for yourself there. And that's one way a lot of people have been able to uh, fundraise. Uh, other things are substacks. So some people are writing blog posts where they share their thoughts and they get followed because, you know, it's pretty unique and they see some sort of insight and then suddenly investors are quite interested as well. Ultimately, a lot of business is a exercise of creativity. And one way that this creativity is expressed is in how you deal with situations like this. Right now, it may be fundraising. In the future, it may be sales. In the future, you don't. It might be hiring. You don't know. But every single process is an exercise in creativity, and it's a chance for you to really show that off. Right. Right. I think you mentioned uh, Twitter. Twitter is really a great source of for networking. I've been recommended to go on Twitter and, you know, be more active on Twitter so many times by so many different people that I can't count, but I still don't do this because I just, you know, I just don't like Twitter. I'm like, nah, you know, I'll, I will not do this, but I still would recommend others to try Twitter out. Uh, if you don't have this really strong bias as I do <laughs> towards Twitter, uh, then you should definitely try it out. There are smart people out there. I read some smart thoughts out there. So definitely Try it out. Great advice, Chris. So um, 
other than those uh, methods of you know create, increasing your network network and getting warm intros to investors, there are also different tools like uh, Signal.nfx. Uh, do you know anything else like Signal.nfx where you can actually get connection to the investor through this you know software? Yeah, there's a lot of uh, different groups out there that are trying to solve this issue. Um, and I am a big believer that the universe of fundable startups is much bigger than what is in Silicon Valley. Uh, the main issue is you have to find the right angels or right investors for you. So each business is different. And I would suggest you really understand who out there is actually investing in your kind of company. So, for example, Summit Angels, they only invest in Y Combinator companies, for example. Uh, if you're not a YC company, it may not be worth your time to even try to reach out and pitch to them. Other people may only invest in their city. And so, you know, if you're in a different city, it's not worth it. Ultimately, there is a large, large universe of potential uh, angels and investors. You just need to find the few that really believe in your vision and your market and can really help you out and get you to the next level. Um, Recently, there has been a couple of Slack groups that have been going around uh, for very specific uh, angel investing. Um, some of them may have a focus on a specific topic. Some of them may have focus on specific uh, geographies. And it's, you just got to do your research to see which one works best for you. Right, right. On a personal note, I would like to mention uh, software called InvestorIntelligence.com. IO or .ai. I'm not quite sure which which ending it has, but just Google Investor Intelligence and it probably is going to show up. Uh, it's a pretty pretty useful tool, uh, you know, just to research uh, investors and also, of course, Crunchbase. Crunchbase is wonderful, one of the best out there. So if you have never used Crunchbase, you should definitely take take a look at this. Um, but here, I wanted to ask you a follow up question on what you just said, and you said that you don't believe that all the startups basically are based in San Francisco, which I definitely believe as a person who lives in Los Angeles, but you personally, you live nearby San Francisco. So do you prefer investing nearby San Francisco or do you invest uh, throughout the whole uh, U.S.? That's a good question. Um, earlier stage investors tend to invest everywhere. Uh, the later you go and the more hands-on the investors are, the closer they typically invest. Um, otherwise, they would feel like they need to travel uh, to you in order to help you out. For me personally, I am geography. Uh, well, I don't really care about geography. Uh, I can say I have not made mm -hmm. any investments outside of the U.S. and Canada, but anywhere in the U.S. and Canada is fine for me. And when you're investing outside of the U.S., there's a lot of other considerations. Uh, you know, I don't know international law as well. Uh, you know, securities laws uh, vary uh, from country to country. Um, so I'm just very familiar with the U.S. system, which is why I only invest in the U.S. Um, however, I have investments in New York, in Houston, uh, and I think even Austin and, you know, California. There, I, I, my investments are all over the place in the U.S., geography-wise. Mm -hmm. But do you... Are are you a generalist investor or are you, uh, I keep forgetting what's the term, or are you 
uh, market specific, no, no, field specific investor, something like that. Are you a field specific investor? I am more of a generalist. Um, however, I don't invest in things that I don't know very well. So, you know, I'm not very good at biotech, for example. Um, the only time I may invest in some biotech company would be if I'm really, really good friends with the founder and I know them and I trust their judgment. And then it's just me trying to support them. Otherwise, you know, my main focus would be around SaaS, both consumer and B2B SaaS. Um, and, you know, I really try to invest in people uh, where I have, you know, worked with them or I see their thinking or have I followed them for a while. And, you know, I think that they really have some unique insight into what they're trying to solve. And they believe something deeply that everyone else doesn't quite believe yet. Got it. Got it. That's that's really interesting. I love more of a generalist investor because I'm, uh, I'm kind of one myself. So let's talk about what, uh, uh, how much time should you spend per investor? So uh, each each speaker of mine who was giving advice on reaching out to investors, nearly all of them said that you just you know you have to do homework on each investor read their blog posts, you know, see what they like, see what they don't like. So, and it takes a lot of time. So what do you think is the normal amount that you should spend per investor? That's a great question. Um, I'm a big believer in like the 80-20 rule and fundraising, it may even be, you know, 10-90 or something like that, 90-10. And the reason is you only need to get a few people to say yes. And for those people to say yes, you should spend a lot more time on the people who have a high probability of saying yes. So uh, mm-hmm. I believe Brad Feld has written about this quite a bit. Uh, and he has this great, great book on uh, fundraising, uh, on startups in general, actually. Um, but he focuses on there's three answers a VC will give you or an angel will give you. And it's a yes, it's a no, and then it's a drawn out no. The most dangerous of these is the drawn out no. And so you have to become very, very good at recognizing that. Um, The investors who are really excited and want in on your deal, they will move quickly. They will move, you know, mountains to to really get this thing done. They'll email you on the weekends. They will, you know, constantly follow up. They'll keep you updated Mm -hmm. on their process and how quickly they're moving and, you know, how they can help. the uh, very good VCs who give a quick mm-hmm. no, they are amazing as well. They may just say, hey, this isn't really my space, or hey, we're invested in a competitor here, or hey, this is like what we don't really see uh, eye to eye on. And they'll give you a quick no, and that is great as a founder, just because you're not going to waste more time. The really dangerous one is they'll drawn out no. So, you know, they may be like, oh, this is kind of interesting. Hey, can you send over some financial models? Can you send over, uh, you know, your pitch deck again? And, you know, can you change this or can you answer these questions? And ultimately, a lot of founders end up spending a lot of time and it's kind of wasted because eventually the answer is going to be no. So, I don't have exact really good advice on how do you identify between a yes and a drawn out no. But what I can say is if they're not extremely excited and if not moving quickly, you probably shouldn't spend too much time on them. 
you could always turn that drawn out no potentially into a yes, but it's only after you have a lot of traction in fundraising. Your first investor should be very excited. So this is a, a familiar right. scenario where you may have talked to an investor and then they may have been like, you know what, this is kind of interesting and they're kind of like a maybe. Don't spend too much time on them. You go find another investor. This investor is really excited. They're like, oh, I want to take the entire round. And you're like, you know what, I'll give you like 70% of the round and then I kind of want 30% for other strategic angels or you know, other investors. And then you go back to that first investor and say, hey, we're already at like you know 70%. We only have a little bit left. You know, uh, are you are you in? And at that right. point, the pressure is on them. They can't do a drawn out no anymore. If they want in, they go on in now. If they don't want in, they're going to miss the deal. So a lot more pressure is on the investor, and you as a founder are in a much better position. So I would say spend almost all your time at the very early stages of fundraising on getting those really really excited investors on board. Don't fall for the VC or angel trick of like, oh, this is kind of interesting. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? And it feels more like they're on the fence. If they're really excited and you know they really want to meet you and they'll, they'll try to make multiple meetings, they will get to their investment criteria. And it's also really good to ask, hey, what does it take to make a decision? For angels, usually it's just them making a decision. They may say, I sleep on it for one yeah. night or I write an investment memo or something along those lines. And then you use that criteria to judge how well am I compared to, you know, what they would invest in. And, you know, if it seems like they're really excited, they're moving quickly, spend all your time closing those people. That's great advice. And just to clarify, you mentioned in the beginning of your answer, the 90-10 rule that you're using. What, what is that rule? Uh, yeah. eighty twenty says that, you know, uh, you should spend 80% of your time on the 20% that matters, right? And oh. uh, it, it's just like, a, it's called Pareto's Law. And it, 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 it's a rough um, number set, but they, it, it usually comes up quite a bit, you know, in sales, you know, you will end up wasting like 80% on like tw of your time on like 20% of your customers or potential customers. And you just got to cut those out. So in this case, you know, you should really aim to spend the majority of your time on the investors who are interested and willing to close. And it may be very small. So you should spend 90% of your time on the 10% of VCs or angels who are extremely excited. Absolutely. That's, that's a good point. And here we're moving on to how you personally invest. So how do you source your yields? Where do you find those investment opportunities? That's a great question. So uh, early on uh, as a re really new angel uh, you have to invest in your own network um, just because ultimately you don't have much of an advantage um, I personally knew I did not have much of an advantage early on so I invested in friends effectively and so the I had a couple childhood friends who started companies and you know those were literally my first investments after that you know, I jumped into more of a you know, pre-vetted community. So I looked at a lot of Y Combinator startups, for example, and we made a few investments out of that. Um, and then beyond that, you start investing and you start getting introed to friend of friends. Or, you know, uh, at one point I was making a few crypto investments and I had one 
crypto investment and they introduced me to two of their you know best customers who were raising and you know you really understand like what is going on and you basically can see the entire vision of these uh groups i guess playing out and then it's like oh i want in there so then i invested in you know a couple of their top customers as well um these days i am a little bit more uh open to investing in uh less traditional like you know friends and network deals um i think i have a but but there's a caveat it has to be in a space that i really feel passionate about or that i think i know a lot about and currently you know i've been thinking a lot about remote work about um how to organize uh uh companies or any type of organization and you know how remote work and these uh long-term uh organizations kind of work together and what about it is extremely advantageous and then what tooling needs to exist in order for this to all work so uh if it's a cold email about you know something that i don't really know very well like let's call it uh direct to consumer you know uh makeup I wouldn't be the right investor. I would not make that investment unless it was a close friend of mine who I really trust and who I really believe in is running that company. Otherwise, mm-hmm. I'm looking for, you know, someone who has a lot of unique insight into the space that I've been thinking about. If they can even surprise me with their insight and I've done a lot of thinking, that's a good sign. You know, if they could push my thinking beyond where, you know, it is, um that really excites me. and uh if i agree with their vision i'm probably in so uh the, yeah it it does change quite a bit and right now i'm really thinking about the future of work that's really interesting and that the topic is really interesting especially now when no one knows how many people will actually return to their offices after the pandemic is over i think that's that's actually a, he chose an exciting field to to look in but here we're moving on to the last question then we'll wrap it up and the last question that I started asking recently my speakers is something like call to action to our listeners right now so what one thing do you think those listeners should do once this episode is over so for example maybe they should uh i know uh follow couple investors on uh twitter and just you know start commenting their field i mean their feed or i know first creating and uh twitter account l or what's that one thing that you want them to do right now um that's a great question um all those are great but i would like all the founders who are listening to really think longer term and uh so i read this book recently it's called what you do is who you are by ben horowitz and in it it really explains that one line what you do is who you are and if you're going to do a startup these journeys are long it's 8 to 10 years it becomes a part of you you pour your blood sweat tears into it and i want all the founders listening to really look internally into themselves and really feel like this is what they want to do because eventually you know what you do is who you become <laughs> so mm, right. the journey of a startup very much is a journey of self discovery of um 
self-realization in many ways, um, where this organization that you're building is almost an extension of yourself. So really spend the time. It doesn't have to be very long, but just really spend the time to make sure you have the conviction to do what you're doing. And if it doesn't fit, it's okay. There are going to be things out there. There's other things out there. It's always easy to move on. But I would love to see more founders who are really excited about what they do and each extremely excited, you know, long-term excited founder inspires multiple other founders. Um, it's not an easy ask. It's not something that it's like, you know, a call to action that's really, really easy to do. But I think that's re really, really important. Uh, don't get caught up in the rush to become a startup founder. Don't get caught up in the rush to try to do anything and you do the first thing that you can think of. Really spend the time understanding who you are and what you really want to bring into the world because that will make you more successful long-term and it will make you happier. And you know it'll all just work a lot easier. When everything is aligned, everything becomes a lot easier. The excitement is tangible. You know, investors get more excited. Uh, your customers become excited and you feel really good about it all. <laughs> Long answer, but you know, hopefully everyone can uh, do that a little bit more. Yeah, definitely. My advice was much shorter and easier to accomplish, you know. <laughs> important too, very important too. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a more of a believer in small steps. I'm trying not to think like extra, extra long term. But you mentioned something really important, which means that you really have to understand that startup life is really, really tough. And it's very long. For example, my previous speaker actually just mentioned, just said a phrase like uh, that when you sign a contract, when you actually sell some shares to an investor, it's like you're concluding a marriage because average marriage is shorter than the relationship between a startup founder and investor. And I think this is insane, completely insane and definitely proves your point that you just, you know, you have to be extremely committed to that sort of relationship. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's more than a marriage. I, I want to put in one point. It, it's a marriage, but every time you accept money from an investor, it's also a promise. And right. the promise is, that you're gonna help grow the value of this. And you know, if you break that promise, like you can break it, but it doesn't look good. And so, you know, what you have to do as a founder is to really communicate with your investors, see it for the long term. If they invested in this company and they're excited and it didn't work out, it's okay. If you communicate it well, they'll invest in your next one potentially. You know, it's a long term game. A lot of these really successful founders, they failed two, three, four times before they hit the really big one. So just keep that in mind. Absolutely. So we will wrap it up here. But as a reminder, Chris mentioned a couple of books, which I already <laughs> forgot, but I will make sure that I will include the links to those books in the description of the episode. So if you want to take a look at them, check the description of this episode. So we'll wrap it up here. Thanks a lot, Chris, for coming up and for sharing your investing field. I think it was a great episode, really thoughtful advice. And thanks a lot. Stay safe out there. Thanks, Constantine. Thanks for having me. And uh, really excited to uh, see uh, how your podcast grows. It's, uh, it's great stuff. It's great content.